Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto back again with another episode of The Reality Dysfunction. This time I'm talking with my dear friend, Mark Pinate. Mark is the director of the Borderlands Theater Company in Tucson, Arizona. I met Mark years ago when he was touring with his band, Grito Serpentino. Mark is and has been a Chicano rock star, guerrilla theater actor, and national slam poet champion. He is a father and a husband. Currently, Mark is creating through Borderlands Theater Company, large-scale creative place projects in Tucson and Nogales. Today, we are talking about placemaking, what it means in the Chicano context, and his current book project. You know, it's one thing to stay home because you want to. I mean, it's another to stay home because you have to. You yeah. know, I've seen a lot of brothers over the years with ankle bracelets on their ankles, man. You know, like they ain't going, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They ain't going yeah. nowhere. They all have that same look on their face, man. Just a little haunted and just kind of like, I need to get the fuck out of here. I used to think to myself, well, it's probably better than sitting in jail. I think it probably is better than sitting in jail, but I don't know how much better it is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's a, it's a different kind of punishment. Yeah. 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 But it's still, still a punishment. Oh, oh without a doubt. Without a doubt, because then there's a lot of like, self-discipline involved in the punishment too just gotta sit here and take it and i keep reading all these stories man about all these crazy people who are all like oh this isn't real like they're still <laughs> saying that even now and i'm just like i don't get it man i cannot reconcile my mind with that level of delusion but you know different people you know have different levels of dealing with things right and, and some people just can't yeah and they'd rather you know I see that as more of a mental, it's just like they can't handle it. So it's better just to, there's always going to be that, that percentage of people that just, I, I, I mean, it's so like science fiction movies, right? There's always, I was watching the, you ever see the 100? No, but I, I have, uh, I have looked at it a number of times and thought to myself that it sounds like a good show. It's pretty good. I mean, the first like two, three seasons are good. Then it, you know, it went too long. But like, there's there's one part where like, <clears throat> it's gonna be like acid rain, and they're telling people you gotta stay inside the ship, and everybody's like been inside the ship, and they want to be out, and there's just this group of people that just goes out anyway. And I thought about this, like, would I rather? What what point do I leave the house anyway, regardless of what might happen to me, because I just can't take it. Yeah. You know, like. And some people it comes faster than others. Yeah. And then it's like there's in the back of their head, like maybe they know. I mean, at least in this, like in in the extreme version of like a fictional science fiction, like there's there's delusion, and then there's also this back of the head where like I'd rather just die than live like this. So I'm gonna yeah. go out and have one last hurrah and pretend that everything's normal before I go out. Yeah. You know so. I've I've hit a range of I mean, as as I guess most of us have you know where it's like oh yeah like I see that the, the end of this you know this is doable it's like a year and, and then there's other times when it's 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 far from that yeah know? and it's like oh this is gonna be every year for the rest yeah. of our lives and you know it's gonna come back season after season and yeah it's crazy and it doesn't help I'm reading a book about uh, <laughs> a <laughs> apocalypse. Uh, and sometimes I told Milton this morning, I get the book in reality confused sometimes. What's, what book are you reading? It's called The Brightest Object in the Universe. Mm. It's a, a friend of ours uh, here in Tucson just, just pu- got it published. She's been working on it for the last 10 years. And it's based off of this idea that we're in a hundred year apocalypse, like in for real. Yeah. It's slow. You know, you may have heard that, that idea. But it's very much like it's just like the market's can't sustain themselves there's a flu takes out a bunch of people like everything crashes you lose electricity you know it's it's very like realistic and yeah that's the one right there man that's i mean all the rest of this stuff whatever blah 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 i can't go to the store dude when the electricity goes out oh we're fucking it's, screwed it's over yeah yeah because <laughs> we don't yeah have any other way to survive, man. You know, then it's, yeah, then it's straight up guns and tribes. And I mean, it's, uh, we were watching The Walking Dead. Oh, yeah. It's just like that, dude. Yeah. You yeah. band together and 
the strong survive, and that's not me. Uh, <laughs> I'm an artist, dude. <laughs> like, I don't even own a gun. <laughs> well, you probably you probably get one pretty fast. Just remember that the point the the part that has the hole in it that's the part that you have to point towards the other person. It's a sad joke, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been interesting. I mean, this is uh, well, I was in Michigan right when everything popped off. Like I got there like mm. the day that everything popped off. I was with people that I knew, obviously, you know, because I was back home. You know, we were just kind of like watching the news and everything, and we weren't honestly weren't being very careful you know, at that point, because we still weren't really sure about, you know, what was happening. I mean, my hand washing, the hand washing frequency went up dramatically during that week. Came back here and um, I self-quarantined for 14 days. Oh, wow. So today's my 14th day. Very happy to announce that I am not sick. I guess uh, it's just a matter of continuing that quarantine at this point. And, yeah. you know, trying to figure out what comes next. I mean, we've been really fortunate, Jess and I, because my job went to online and hers, you know, she's essential personnel. So I'm not really sure if that's actually fortunate or not, but, you know. She's and, still at that, um, at uh, like, re- re- um, what do you, that center for? Home? Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so she they, still goes in every day or? Yeah. Well, they still have oh. staff there and stuff, man, because they, yeah. you know. They can't uh, take the kids, you know, and send them anywhere. Right. So, yeah, but they're being careful up there. They've closed the campus and all that kind of stuff. So, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I think, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. I'm also really confused, honestly, about what uh, Joe Biden is doing right now. You know, you would think. I mean, if I were running for president and I was the presumptive nominee, I'd start holding daily press conferences, man, and just be like, you know, yeah, this is what's up. Like, you got to stop doing that. I mean, it just seems to me like he is squandering, um, you know, a prime opportunity to really uh, set himself up right now in the middle of a of a national, you know, crisis, you know, as a leader that can be trusted and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and honestly, it just kind of makes me think that he's actually not the fact that he's, that he's not doing it, man. It's just like, okay. I mean, I didn't have much faith in him. Ever. No. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, when he took the lead, I'm like, oh, we're losing. Yeah. You know, I, I felt the same way too. I mean, that's safe middle of a road choices. That was Hillary. That was the same, same, same shit. thing. Yep. Same thing. You know, they didn't yeah. learn their lesson. It's still, but uh, I read today, he's trying to get his signature on those checks that go out to everybody. Oh, really? About that? Yeah, dude. And he will. Biggest PR stunt. Right? He's going to put his signature on the check. I, Say what you want about that fool. Yeah, no, no. You know, no. I'm, with, I'm mean, with you on that one. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. I've been, I've been saying that from the beginning. I was like, this, this motherfucker is crafty about making himself yeah. look good. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yep. Wow. Con man. I mean, he's a he's a good con man. So he he's is got, good at that. He ain't gonna save a, us. No. <laughs> but, uh, no. He actually was save him. Put us all back to work. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, you guys need to get back to work by eight Easter. Yeah. Get out there. It's okay. <laughs> I know some of you are gonna die, but I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, that's the strategy, right? The herd Im- immunity where you just like, like whatever doesn't make it doesn't make it. Everybody's immune. You know, you just put them all back out there. Get rid of the people that can't hack it. I would just say from a purely like logical standpoint, I see that do. But the problem is they don't even know how this virus will mutate, man. I mean, it could very well be that, like you said, you know, a minute ago, this is just something that happens every five years. And every five years, everybody's just going to have to settle the fuck down and, you know, go yeah. inside for, you know, three or four months or five months or whatever. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem. I mean, that's part of the problem to their logic anyways. But, yeah, I'm not really into that idea. So, yeah. But I'm not going to lie and say I don't, I don't see it. I'm just saying I, I think it's short-sighted and probably not the answer. So, 
but that's what this country loves the instant short-sightedness yes (laughs) hell yeah what do i get now (laughs) uh all right man let's talk let's talk about borderlands for for a little bit sure man sure um so you know we were all ready to go with barrio stories in nogales we had gotten this sweet warehouse uh, near downtown in kind this historic warehouse where we were having our our giant puppet rehearsals and shadow theater there was uh i think three classes the pima has an extension campus pima community college and so we got a couple teachers to put it on the syllabus it was like 20 percent of their grade wow they were yeah they were really like on board uh, gave us a lot of class time to like present the idea and to just organize things. So that was really great. And we were starting to build a really nice momentum with our resident steering committee. We had a principal on there, um, some other elders in the community, um, some teachers, just other people that working for the Democratic Party, you know, just people that were in, in charge, like somebody in charge of a nonprofit. It was a good group. And they all like, lifelong you know multi-generational residents of nogales and uh and they were getting excited the, the cory family which one of the main merchant families you know so like retail aside from produce right which is still doing fine but the retail industry of, of downtown morley avenue i mean that was until until the militarization of the border i mean that was the other economy that ran nogales arizona mm-hmm. Because everybody would come across from Mexicans coming over to buy the stuff that they can't buy in Mexico. Mm -hmm. That worked for about a hundred years. The early merchants coming over around the turn of the century, setting up their little shops. And and then eventually by the fifties and sixties, these big ass department stores bringing fashions from New York, from Paris, from all over. There's a lot of working class in Nogales Sonora, but there was a lot of rich Nogalenses Sonorans, you know, um, that would come over to the United States side and get like the best stuff. Right. So that was, there was a few families, the Brackers, the Corys, a couple others, but the Corys were, were down, man. They, they were all ready. Evan Corey, he's a little younger than me, went to Juilliard. So he's an artist, all right. uh, incredible piano player, but he had come back and he was working at his parents' store. And he's probably like the third or fourth generation that's been in Nogales. They're like Mexican Lebanese family. He'd already like started a mural project where all these like vacant facades they were they were putting. They had planned like five murals. I mean, they're still doing it. Uh, they just did the second one. So he so there's this this idea that he was part of 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 the downtown merchants um, of of transforming Morley Avenue, kind of like what Bisbee is. Mm-hmm. But not like not exactly, but from this retail thing that was no longer possible because of the border, to this like arts and cultural hub, right? It would it would, it would bring in people from all over Arizona and also bring in people from from the Mexican side, but like building off of and then and then the part that like no that the barrio stories could add to that was sort of building out the historical assets, like that there was this history of this really porous border that allowed for this incredible exchange between Mexico and the United States that families like the Corys were still like the inheritors of, that there it's possible to, you're not going to, you're not going to open the border and bring back that kind of commerce, right. but there's certain, there's cultural artifacts that can be resuscitated. And then there's a historical component that just kind of gives it a context for these artistic and cultural and food food ways like all these things to kind of like th- base themselves off of so they right. sort of have a foundation it's in the history of, of merchant entrepreneurialism and also like this mexican american back and forth so it was going really well um and we had some you know we had i had collected 20 oral histories really good stuff we were really going to transform that that street we were going to have all these um large scale projections on the on the old stores 
this idea of like, obviously not as big, but like the idea of Times Square with all those giant displays and advertisements right? Uh, of being able to sort of walk through this quarter mile of downtown Morley Avenue and just be bombarded from all sides of oral histories and digital animations and just the, the glorious past, which I, people take Nogales for granted. I mean, it was this place as a kid where you would go across the line with your family, the same way that Americans would, and tourists would just go across the line and get the shit they couldn't get here. It was a lot of touristy kind of knickknack shit, but also like foods, different kinds of fruit you couldn't get on this side. But all of that was going to be like put in your face, and, and it it was it was like nostalgia on like steroids, but like yeah. it's like really like and because like with this particular production, what <clears throat> what you guys were doing is I mean you're bringing it out of the theater and you're putting it right into the streets of Nogales, you know you're bringing performance and history all together in this intersection on this street where where it actually took place at. And so yeah. that's the, when you say the transformation, that's really the transformation that you're talking about. Yeah, because Morley Avenue up until I'd say maybe the late 70s, early 80s, uh, but certainly at its heyday in the, the 50s, 60s, uh, it was popping. I mean, there was yeah. like thousands of people on that street, uh, especially on the weekends, but every day. And so we were going to bring that spirit back in the, and that's, this being the third time around, what I've noticed that Barrio's stories, and it's, it's theater, it's art, right? What it's really good at is, in, is, is uh, transporting you yeah. through visuals, through sounds, right? Through the words, the, the poetry, right? Like it transports you. And for the old timers, you know, it, it really comes alive. And for youngsters, it comes alive in a way that hearing your, your tata's stories won't, won't get you to. Right. right. Those those stories will get you only so far that you're not you can't visualize it. It's just it's your grandfather's stories he's always trying to tell. If if they do, a lot of parent grandparents don't talk about the past. Yeah. Right. So so yeah, it was it was uh I thought I think we were on we had built a really good momentum over the past year and we're really involving Nogales youth and, and adults. And it was all about to, we were six weeks, seven weeks out. And like the whole marketing apparatus was about to just take off. And we were going to hit it hard and just build, build, build to that yeah. weekend. And then this happened. And so we had to, yeah, we were going to, we were going to at first, right? Like, okay, we're going to postpone the event, but we're going to keep building all the shadow puppets. And, you know, but then it's like, oh, well, school's canceled. Like, we can't make these kids come out for rehearsals if they're not even going to school. Right. So then that stopped. And then, you know, eventually within a week, we're like, oh, yeah, this, everything has to stop. Yeah. So it's postponed. Uh, we're hoping in the fall to present it. But I couldn't even give you, say it's 50-50. I mean, I have no idea. Like, it, I, there may be this small window where it's possible before winter comes again and then like all bets are off i think yeah but then even then like are people gonna want to come out feel safe to come out in october uh, yeah in september or something like that you know? that's certainly a yeah. question that that's getting batted around i mean especially when they talk about the economy and stuff i mean because they're yeah I mean, they're, they're already like getting us ready for the second wave you know like, yeah yeah, right. they're just like, yeah, sure, we can beat it this time, but you know, don't get fooled. It's it's gonna come right back, and there's gonna be yeah. a, a second wave. So, hey, Mark, you know, I went to the first Barrio Stories in Tucson. It was amazing. Like I had I'd never really seen anything like that before, and no, I hadn't seen anything like that before. I think I'd seen people attempt to do what you guys did in Tucson, and I think they were good attempts, but I think that where they failed was that they didn't think broadly enough they didn't think on the on the grand scale that it actually needed to be in order to make it come alive right and so mm -hmm. i'm just wondering a little bit about your thought process as a, as a director as an artist at what point did you say we got to go big and how did you uh, arrive at that it has to do with this idea 
it's called creative placemaking. So for folks that aren't familiar with that, that it means a lot of things, but to boil it down, at least the way that I'm using it, it it's there's public spaces that are underutilized. It might be an abandoned, vacant lots. Usually there's, it wasn't so much the case in Vital Stories, but it's usually like uh, there's like homeless people or drug act. There's all kinds of like uh, shit that, you know, not good stuff that's happening here. And when you inject it with like artists come in and inject it with arts and culture, first of all, so it utilizes these public spaces in a way that they weren't, they were being underutilized. It brings in a whole other group of people that tends to flush out then like that sort of criminal or like other kind of like negative element. It sort of brings a light onto it. And then it opens up possibilities of like, oh, we didn't realize that this space could be used this way. And then you could, it can have sustainability with like pop-up, you know, food things and, you know, food trucks and like, you can have these pop-up things that continue and then that space becomes activated. Walking through the convention center, the Tucson Convention Center, it's not like totally underutilized. I mean, there's, there's the arena, the music hall, the Leo Rich Theater, and those venues are being used, mm -hmm. but the actual plaza spaces were always empty. We're right. always, part of that had to do with this bad blood of the way they displaced the barrio that was there. And so it was almost like this curse was put on it. And certainly people that remembered that vowed never to set foot on that space again. And like people told us this like to our faces when we were like, hey, we're doing this to honor you. And you know, and there's some people that were like cool with it and some elders that were like, nah, I don't even go to my granddaughter's graduation there. Like I don't mm. set foot there, you know. I guess because the space is big, the, the convention center campus, I don't know at what point I was like, let's just fill up the entire campus. I mean, I think it had to do with so much to show. Oh, I know what it was. I, I got a big grant. I got a $50,000 grant. Oh, <laughs> well, that never hurts, does it? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, well, let me spend this money. Right. Um, and so we did. And, th and that money allowed us to, you know, hire like 50 actors and, you know, all these designers and all, all this stuff. Um, and then at a certain point it became, then I got this idea of, of creating a map. And I thought of like the maps at SeaWorld or at the zoo, like they're kind of like cartoony. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that, so then, then the idea of like an amusement park feel came into my head. And so then we were also trying to like create that, but, but the attractions weren't rides. They, they were like these historical installations and experiences you could have yeah that, i mean i think that's how it came to that this idea of, uh what were you talking about uh, creative placemaking yeah that's a big trend i'd say the last maybe last 10 years okay. the nea uh created these r town grants uh as a way to really pr push this idea and an r town grant any r town grant um I think the lowest is maybe 30,000, but you can apply it up to 200,000 and it's a matching grant. Wow. So you could have a $400,000 project. Wow. Yeah. And it's always some kind of arts or cultural nonprofit. You have to be 51C3 and you have to partner with a, 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 gov a municipal government entity. So like for Nogales, the mayor's office of Nogales, the city of Nogales was our right. partner. Like the city has to be a partner. It could be an architecturally based where there's like some historic area that needs, you know, you hire an architectural firm and you're going to, you know, not remodel, but like resuscitate these old buildings and, and then put in artists inside and food vendors and, to, and sort of create this like retail and arts district. That's a real standard way of using those grants. But it could also be like what we're doing, right? Where we're, that we were working with about, 70 youth from about three different like education institutions from junior high school students to college students and then we were working with Nogales Community Development which was a, a nonprofit that was started about I think 15 years ago uh, really trying to re revive downtown and then we were working with a, a couple of the, the businesses the merchants they're the old like 80 year old 90 year old merchants yeah um, and then just residents and then the elders come in as the oral historians, uh, those primary informants, and that's their contribution. And then they usually have these big giant families. So when you like great grandpa is on the screen, like all his progeny are gonna come 
and check it out. And so like, that's how we end up, we've always had, we've only done it twice, but we've had extremely successful turnout. Yeah. Talking like a couple thousand people per event. Um, but anyway, so creative placemaking, um, it's just that, right? It's, it's looking for spaces that are there that are not being used in a way that they're not getting the most bang for your buck out of them and getting, but the, I guess the part, the creative part, right, is bring in artists or creative types to come up with creative ways of using that space. It's kind of like how you guys use that underpass for the play mm-hmm. that you did this, this past fall. It was, it was called they come with their dogs or they came with their, their dogs. Their, right? their dogs came with them. Their yeah. dogs came with them. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was fascinating, man. The, the students that I brought down, for that we're just mm-hmm. blown away by that man they were still talking about it weeks later about the play and the way that you had set it up and everything very interesting i like this idea yeah yeah i mean um and i have to be honest you know like i mean i'd learned about this in in graduate school and and certainly there's a piece of it my initial understanding with it came from you know I, i'm coming out of chicano theatro background and so, you know, the classic actos in the fields mm-hmm. on a flatbed truck. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the graduate school term for that is site-specific theater. And so coming as a, as a 20-something-year-old, first being exposed to uh, Teatro Chicano, you know, I, I wanted to go, you know, doing guerrilla theater, taking it to the streets. You know, that, that was a lot of fun. But there comes a certain point where you're like, well, you can't make a career out of that. No one's going to pay for that. And also you're just kind of preaching to the choir. Like you're never going to go, like I'm not going to go to some like conservative part of town, do guerrilla theater and change anybody's ideology. Right. At best, right, you're going to do it at a protest and it's going to bolster what people already believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to motivate people to continue the boycott or whatever, right? That, that's the best way to use that. But looking at creative placemaking, it was sort of, in my mind, I'm not saying this is what it is, but in my thought process, it was a sort of a sophistication of that guerrilla street theater. Uh, and it sort of took the like blatant political edge, although it's still very political, but it's oh, not yeah. so in your, over your, you know, beating you with a hammer over your head. Right. And that makes it viable. Yeah. No, I think anytime that you remind people or remind a community or remind a whole, um, you know, like a whole community that, that there was, there was a group of people here that were displaced. I mean, it's, and the thing is, is that it's kind of like this, this ongoing thing, right? It's like 500 years of displacement and we can see that it's still, still happening, you know, constantly all the time people are being forced to move. I mean, we talk about environmental catastrophe or whatever, but I mean, or, you know, apocalypse or extinction uh, scenarios, man. But like Native people in the Americas have been going through an extinction scenario for the last 500 years. Every time that that we begin to, to talk about that, uh, especially if we're talking about it like in a very strident or a political manner or whatever, people just immediately t- tune out. I think that what's really interesting about what you guys are doing at Borderlands is that you have this this political message right that is um that's being given through through the theater right which i mean really if you stop and think about it those were probably the first political forums in humanity or for humanity right i mean you look at the greeks you, you look at other civilizations and um plays and playwrights have always you know had their their finger on the pulse of of the politics of the community so no, I think it's uh, I think it's I think it's really good. I like barrio stories. So Mark, you guys have been down in Tucson for like about what seven years now? Yeah, yeah, since twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen, yeah. and you're originally from Arizona too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What else? Uh, you know, is is going on? Well, you know, I, I mean, one thing uh, I'll say that uh, just to sort of finish off with with the work of Barrio Stories um, okay. and how you mentioned that I'm from Arizona. You know, a lot of what Barrio Stories uh, has, does is instill a sense of, of pride, yes, right? Pride in place, but uh, more importantly, a sense of belonging. Yeah. And this idea of belonging, it, it, sound, it sounds simple, 
And, and on the face, it is, right? It was introduced to me by uh, Professor Lydia Otero, Dr. Otero, who is a historian. She's fifth generation Tucsonense here at the University of Arizona. But she first told me about this idea, I'd say about three, three years ago, maybe, maybe more. I think she was uh, writing a humanities grant and she, she had written something about that in, in the application. And uh, I didn't really understand what that meant until doing this Nogales project now. Because I am from Arizona, I'm on my mother's side of the family. Our, those roots go back. Like, if you start looking, you know, my mom, she took the DNA test. She's like 74% Native American. Mm. We, we don't know what our tribal affiliation, or, I mean, we're, you know, uh, she suspects it's Tohono uh, Akiel. Um, or Pima, they should be called Pima Indians. But like, you know, for a lot of reasons, they have to do colonization and, and the, the sort of hierarchies of, of, of race and uh, of, of being Indio as, as something as, as the bottom of the totem pole and then affiliating yourself with Mexican. This is like back in the 1910s, 1920s, right? The native part of your heritage is, is, is erased. Yeah, but like when you do the DNA, like my mom, she's seventy-five percent native. Uh, I'm like uh, something like forty percent or something. That aside, just from the Mexican roots, from Sonora, uh, my, my my ancestors that came up from Sonora and and settled in in Phoenix, Tempe area. That just that alone goes back about like six generations. Right. I know my I knew my grandfather, my tata was from Nogales, Sonora. Uh, he never talked about it ever. As I did these oral histories and I heard about all the parades and the perradas and the, the festivals and just all the different cultural aspects of, of Nogales Sonora and, and really what a, what a, a vast, I mean, like all parts of, of Mexico and, and everywhere, but I, at a certain point, I'm like, my grandfather was part of all this. Yeah. And then I asked myself, why did it take until I was 47 and me to talk to strangers right, to, to find out about what it was like for my grandfather when he was growing up? Um, and, and, and all these counter narratives to like the, the typical like, oh, I'm from Mexico and things are bad here. So I have to come to the United States for a better life. Like yeah. that's really the narrative that I thought was my grandfather's narrative. But that's not not really the case. Uh, actually, life was really good in post-World War II in, in, at the border in, in Nogales, Sonora. Like, there was some pretty incredible things going on. Great life, an easy life, a fun life, um, yeah. a prosperous life. People came over for other reasons. It turns out my grandfather suspected his, his stepfather of killing his mother, so he tried to kill his stepfather at 16. And it got botched, and he came over here to live with his, his aunt. And that's what brought him here. That's a pretty and, Mexican uh, story, right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. With the with the gun, the stepfather had bought him. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. But like on on that hour drive back to Tucson after every oral history that I would I would have time to process that on the on the I nineteen. And by the end of all this, I really was like, oh, damn, this is my land. Like, this is where my ancestors are from since yeah. time immemorial. And it, it took a few months of talking to people to tell me their histories for it to sink in and to be like, that's my inheritance is yeah. all this culture that they're talking about. I mean, I don't have to go anywhere. This is it. This is what made my family. Mm. And uh, that has a profound effect on a person to know where you're from and to be there and to know about it. And, and even like tortillas, like flour tortillas, uh, sovequeñas as they're called, these big, giant, thin tortillas. Mm -hmm. My nana made those. You take all this for granted. And then you realize that that's a cultural artifact. Like that's that's... That's something that like your, my people have like invented that gave birth to chimichangas and burritos, right? Yeah. They don't have those. You go to Defe, you can't order a burrito. Like, this, this, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Right? Like, so that's pretty incredible. And, and that, 
I'm trying to write a book about that. So that's, that's something that like, I, I just got a grant from the National Performance Network. It's called the Storytelling and Documentation Grant. Uh, that's going to allow me at least a month, like six weeks, uh, which was going to be over the summer, which now is like next month, to start to like gather my thoughts around that, but also like to do like this sort of literature review. There's not a lot of writing about creative placemaking from Chicanos or Chicanex that are working to resuscitate places in their ancestral homelands. And so that's like with Barrio Stories and then this idea of belonging and as a Chicano, like there's not a lot of people doing that or at least yeah. writing about it. Yeah. Know? And so that's what I'm trying to write a book about in the hopes that it will inspire and also give some methodologies to other folks that want to, because it had a, the second Barrio Stories had a profound impact on Barrio Nita. Like the first Barrio Stories, that Barrio was, was decimated. So it was more of a memorial project. Mm. The second one, the second one, that neighborhood is still alive. And, you know, I could go on and on about like the impact just within a year of that Barrio Stories, but like it was tangible. It, you could see it like public pool reopened, neighborhood center hours and staff increased, stop signs put up, um, homies, 20 something year old, tatted up becomes a secretary for the neighborhood association like nice. the election i mean like so much so much like two mural projects went up like there's more shit i mean that's just some of it um uh, and that's what i was hoping I, mean, I don't know what was gonna happen in nogales but like it was gonna be interesting to find out and it, and it may you know it may still happen but we'll, we'll see you know we've talked about this on and off in you know several different conversations man and i just uh I think you're really on to something here. I think, you know, and I've, I've said this to you before in, in terms of like how you're thinking about it, right? Because, I mean, so often these days, I mean, colonization, decolonization is a metaphor, you know, like uh, we got to de decolonize this, decolonize that. But I think that when you um, do the type of work that you're doing and you see, like you, you're reclaiming these spaces, you're reclaiming these neighborhoods, you're, you're reintroducing history, right? What you're really doing is saying to people, especially even the people who are in those neighborhoods too, who you wouldn't think necessarily that you would have to say this to, but I mean, let's face it, you know, as uh, Chicanos, as indigenous people, I mean, we exist without history, right? I mean, we live within the colonizer's history, you know? And so all of this around us, right, in some way, is a reminder of this subjugated position that we occupy within this society. So, you know, how is it that we take these places? How is it that we take these memories, right? And, and use them to, to sort of like impel us forward into this, this return to history as a, a recognized grouping of people. And, and I think, I mean, I'm not saying that that's how you're thinking about it. If you are, I think that that's really cool. But I don't want to put words in your mouth is what I'm saying. But when I hear you talk about it, you know, that's part of what I hear. And well, one, I'm not surprised. Two, you know, looking at like your long body of work through Grito Serpentino and your poetry, I'm not surprised that you're arriving at these conclusions at all, man. It seems really, it seems pretty inevitable, right, that you would do that or that you would think about it that way and yeah i'm not surprised a lot of people don't write about it but i'm really excited to see where the where the project leads man i'm really excited to read whatever it is that you're you're going to produce over the next year or so i'm pumped i have to get it yeah. into my, my chicano studies courses so i applied for this projecting all voices fellowship um i think i think that's what i, I sent you that a text of, oh that was a different no that was a nifa um grant but yeah um because the other part the other part to all this has to do with this coming more from like a straight up arts art side you know the model we have for art it's a 501c3 nonprofit arts nonprofit it's coming from museums regional theaters it, it it's coming from a white liberal wealthy place right people that have philanthropists you know they have wealth they need to park their money somewhere 
that are happy to do it at their regional theater. We don't have that in our community. And sadly, what wealth there is still gives it to the white institutions because that's who they're associating with. That's right. what gives them status. Right. Like, and they're usually like conservative. Um, and so they're not going to give money to some kind of grassroots ethnic you know, arts institution that's like believes the complete opposite of what they're into. Yeah. Um, I like the way you said the word ethnic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so like, so you can't count on like the Latino businesses, uh, like at least the big ones. Like, so like this other thing that I'm trying to figure out is, you know, I think about Motown. I think about the Chitlin circuit. Yeah. Right. You know, and you're, you're, you know, this is your, your, your neighborhood, right? Like, how African-Americans create their complete own economy. Yeah. Uh, their own, their own touring circuits. Yep. And sustain something that then is eventually right, you know, noticed by whites and then co-opted and everything. But like, um, that's what I, I want to try to figure out how to create. So I, I'm applying for this fellowship that will hopefully allow me a, a year to just, it's something it's, I think it's not something that's done quickly. It's slow and it has to do with relationship building yeah. and explaining, explaining to people that no, normally would go see theater, why it's a value to them. Yeah. And it's not even trying to create the donors. It's just trying to pay 10 bucks yeah. uh, to go, go see something. But if you get enough of those people um, and you get some of the smaller, like Latino Chicano institutions that, that, that are willing to, you know, write some grants and, and be presenters and things and, and figuring out how to, and then also getting all the Latino artists, Latinx artists to, to create a coalition uh, where we're also presenting each other and collaborating with each other and, and combining our resources. So there's this mobilization of, of Latinx artists in Arizona that I, I think needs to happen where we don't really talk to each other. I'm an hour and a half away from Phoenix. I don't know what any Phoenix artist is doing, yeah. nor do they know what I'm doing. Yeah. And that, that shouldn't happen. Yeah, that shouldn't be happening. That's something I, I I never thought I would be like. I was like, I'm just gonna make art. Like, I leave this administrative stuff to other people. But like, no one else, no one else is doing it. Uh, yeah. And I'm not saying like I'm gonna come and save the day, but I, I need to put food on my table. Yeah, that's what I got to do. Well, it's it's not it's not about saving the day, brother. And I I know I mean I. I know you well enough to know that that's, it's not about saving the day, but it is about working for your community. And it is about bringing people together in in a bigger way, which like I said, just a second ago, I see it over the trajectory of your career, right? Yeah. I mean, I know some people, I mean, as an organizer of most three decades now, I've had plenty of people come at me like, you know, who do you think you are? And all that. And I'm just like, you know what, man, it's cool. I didn't come here to tell you what to do. Uh, I came here to work with people and if they want to work with me, that's fine. And if they don't, man, yeah, I'll go home and watch Netflix. It's, it's all good, you know? So, but you're, you're right. The way that artistic expression is under attack in the world, I was going to say in this country, but it's not even in this country. It, it's in, it's in this world. And you could see in some ways really that the fundamental attack is that co-optation that you were talking about, right? Because people are just like, this is too powerful. It, it connects too deeply to the human psyche for it allowed to be unchecked, you know? And so, I mean, you know, when you have, uh, when, when you have something like that and, and it begins to grow, I mean, it's just, it becomes one of the pillars of the community. And I think that part of the thing that I've really learned over the years and, and I've really come to accept and to embrace is that, you know, you don't have a cultural movement and a political movement, right? You don't have an artistic movement and an intellectual movement. All of these things are intertwined together. They're inextricable from each other, right? And it's it's only when we begin to like over-internalize this Western way of thinking, you know, where everything has to be in a category, right? Mm -hmm. But the category is the human experience, you know? And so how do all of these different things impact, right? Who we are, art, you know, they talk about how how important science is and 
science is important. There's no doubt. I believe in science. I'm like as El Esqueleto, right? I believe in science, right? But poetry and science, these are not the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, science, the way that we understand it now doesn't come out of the, the humanities of of the Renaissance, you know, moving forward. I mean, it's just, you know, and so I, yeah, I, I feel you, bro. I mean, I, I hope, oh, I really hope, man, that somehow I can, I can help you with that, that I can be a part of that. That would be, that would be good. You know, I mean, the play's the thing, right? Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, good old Shakespeare. Um, uh, and and what you're saying right of like politics and art they're not separate and that it's a good segue right to this antigone project where i'm i'm um really trying to work with with daca communities um for as long as they're around yeah we'll see this summer um but but regardless like they've already been that that generation has been created whatever their status is legally like they they've got the 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 tools and the motivation and and the organization um and i don't know you know this may not be the best community to start with although in a lot of ways it is but um so so this this project uh, the the antigone the, the the sophocles greek classic um and i have to i have to give props to luis alfaro the playwright out of uh out of la um, who who wrote a trilogy of, of Greek plays in a sort of Chicanofied version of them? Uh, that's where I got the idea uh, to take Antigone and the original Antigone. Uh, it's about this this girl and her uncle, who's the king, and her two brothers. There's a civil war, and the two brothers kill each other, and the, and the brother that died fighting for the city gets buried, and the one that it, that, that died attacking the city. Uh, is is denied burial rights, yeah. and, and so Antigone, right, is 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 she goes and buries him anyway, and the penalty is death mm-hmm. for for breaking the law, and and so it, it's this classic, you know, uh, rule of law versus uh, you know humanity or a greater law, God's law or whatever, rule of nature, and that's why that play is done. It's done a lot in Latin America, um, a lot of adaptations uh, because there's this. And, and as I see the Scott Warren trial, you know, and this idea of, of an act of humanity being criminalized, uh, it, it's, it's Antigone. Uh, and so, so in my version, Antigone is a humanitarian aid worker. Her, her uncle, Creon, just, just became promoted to a chief border patrol agent mm. of the Tucson, Tucson sector. In this case, I call it the Thebes sector, just to distance it a little bit. But he's the he's the head guy of Border Patrol, uh, and and she's got a brother. She's got two brothers. One became one went to join the Marines, got out, became a Border Patrol agent. The other one got deported and and came back as a was was using as a mule to come back and 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 got in this shootout, DA Border Patrol and the cartel people. And um, and him and his brother both die in that shootout, uh, and and so same thing. She's trying to bury her her brother that was deported, uh, and Creon passes is, is enforcing the zero tolerance law where like anybody illegally crossing that dies in the in the desert is just going to be left out there. We're not going to retrieve the bodies. We're not going to deal with them. And so Antigone is also a DACA recipient. I want to. I've been interviewing DACA folks background research uh, to present this this main character in, in an authentic way but i'm trying to use this project to not just be a play but to be a way a resource for for daca individuals for daca serving organizations in tucson and phoenix so i want them to like write parts of the story themselves this goes back to like agency and working with communities. And there's like a lot of, a lot of talk right now amongst artists and, the, and funders, certain funders, that if you're, if you're an artist and you're gonna write about a certain community, you know, what f- methods are you employing to ensure that there's agency, there's equity amongst yourself and then the communities you're working with, especially if they're vulnerable communities to begin with. Okay. okay. So like for me, it's like, well, 
why don't you be an equal partner in creating this? I'm not just gonna like come and interview you and transcribe your interview and then take parts of it and put it in my story, which is what Mas was, the, the first play I did here in Arizona. Um, instead, why don't I give, teach creative writing workshops, give you some tools, let you write parts of the play, and then I'll put those in there. And then as part of the DACA community, at the immigrant community, you, you actually have contributed to the play. We've worked together. And then hopefully that, that that allows organizations like there's a group called Aliento in Phoenix, Scholarships AZ here in Tucson, um, UA Student Immigrant Resource Center, to have more of a stake in seeing yeah. this production happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And not, not just seeing it happen, but then like, finding sponsors uh to, to, to buy like 100 tickets and then i give those 100 tickets to that organization you sell them as a fundraiser yeah right um you you and then there's there's classes uh that, that assign their students to, to talk about daca and immigration and young people uh born in this country i mean not born in this country but raised here and all so all these different shells that then that the play is just is just a hub or an engine that allows all this other stuff to happen. And going back to building relationships between artists and communities, it begins the relationship between this community that probably wasn't going to see theater, that now maybe will will take a first step to being like, oh, that's an option. That's something I can do, especially when the theater has something to say that like is important to me. Yeah. So that's kind of that idea. That's that's good, man. It's brilliant. I like I love it. Seriously. I think anytime that you can get people involved in writing and introducing them, I mean you're accomplishing a number of things at one time, but I think the biggest one of the biggest things that you know anybody who does that is accomplishing is that they're demonstrating to those individuals that they have the ability to also produce uh, art and to write in that way. And that right there, I mean, first rule of any revolution, right? Is that we have to replicate ourselves and the skills that we have and, and pass those on, man. That's, you know, that's called being a force multiplier, right? Mm. And so it's not just one person that does it, but now it's a hundred people that know how to do it, right? And that's, yeah. that's the thing I think in, in any movement, the artistic movement, you know, the intellectual movement, right? And the radical politics. I mean, those of us who are already here, I mean, we have to take on that role as force multipliers and, you know, and begin that educational process. That's hot, man. I love it. Mark. Yeah. Well, well, I'll tell you, but the, the challenge is, and I think it's to their credit is at least the, the, and you know, I mean, I, I've encountered a certain number of people from the DACA community, but they're, they're savvy. Yeah. They're also very, takes a while to build trust yeah. with them. Yeah, when you're well, not part of that community, even if I'm brown and so, everything, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what are you selling? And what are you trying to get from us? And how's mm. that gonna, how's that gonna benefit you? Yeah, you know. And so that's that's been a challenge. Uh, but I will say, you know, I've learned a lot. I, I haven't. It's been a slow road with them, but I definitely have been learning a lot, uh, and learning about how to work with people like. I started teaching these uh, poetry workshops with them. Um, I had to cancel it. I mean, it started a few weeks ago. We were right in the middle of it, and then all this happened. But in some ways, uh, and I and I and I hired a DACA recipient to co-facilitate it with me because I didn't feel comfortable being the person in charge, the only person in charge. And that that other person was providing a certain skill set and certain knowledge base that I didn't have that yeah. would allow me, hopefully, to to interact with these folks in a way in a better way but like when when this comes back and we're able to meet again um i had a, be a better idea is to invite this cat named yosimar reyes out of san jose california um he's a lgbtq gay you know daca recipient incredible poet uh that i met when he was in high school carlos santana funded his first book of poetry Whoa. Um, yeah, he's okay. fat. I mean, he's that's that's who he is. What's his name again? Um, Yosimar Reyes. Yosimar Reyes. Okay. Yosimar. Yeah. Uh, I talked to, and I know him from high school. Um, I was organizing these slam poetry contests out of Macla, and he was part of that. Um, I featured him a bunch of times at Galeria de la Raza. 
and I and I, I Facebook him and I'm like, hey, uh, you know, I'm doing this thing. Um, do you want to be can I fly you out here and have you teach some workshops to some DACA folks he's like hell yeah so like I need to get him to come over and teach the workshops you know I'd love to be in the room yeah listening documenting but like let this brother yeah teach to his own people yep um instead of me trying to fake like I I, you know yeah no I feel um, that yeah so so these are these are little things that are coming along uh, so I'm trying to create a fellowship for the DACA participants where they get paid a certain stipend. Uh, the brother comes over and like kicks it off and then they continue online, uh, weekly sessions, writing, you know, getting feedback on their writing. Uh, and then he comes back again at the end. And so like, and, the, and some of that like has to do with like all the Zoom meetings happening. I'm like, oh, I see how yeah. I can teach this online because he lives yeah. in California. Right. So, Yeah. I hope I get to do this stuff. You will. <laughs> you will, man. You will. I mean, it's just uh we've all gotta um I mean we just we just gotta muddle our way through this first part of it, you know. And yeah. then um it'll it I think I believe the path will reveal itself, you know, in terms of what it is that we have to to move forward with. Mark, it's been good talking to you. I don't know if you realize this or not, but we are now at an hour and three minutes. That went by fast, man. That's all we have for today. I want to thank Mark for taking the time out to talk with me and to remind all of you, this can't last forever. But in the meantime, here's a song by Mark and Grito Serpentino. And we're gonna slow this up a little bit. Um, this is a little something called Unidad. And it starts with a little funky bass line. If Mikey Mike, manitas de oro. Yeah, that's what I like. Drum man, can you give me something a little slinky? Joey, bring us in. Billings, do killings, ain't ready and willing to blast motherfuckers like suckers. And the streets scream like banshees. Russian roulette with their veins Forgetting the names of the children With those on triggers, they figures Who gives a fuck anyway, you see?
in a psychological cell, the hell of low self-esteem. Seems things are gonna get worse before they get better.